Welcome back, everyone. We are now rolling into another episode here on the Renaissance podcast. And today we're going to talk about the great epic of J.R.R. Tolkien, the Lord of the Rings. So our guest today is the host of the Philosophy and Mythology podcast, Unlimited Opinions. And he's also a student of linguistics in Missouri. So Adam Bishop, welcome to the podcast. I'm very happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thank you so much for taking the time. And we've been listening to so much of your podcast. We binged the whole philosophy part before Christmas, and it was really great. Then you went through the book of uh, Kenny, is it? Anthony Kenny's, yeah, New History yeah. of Western Philosophy. Great yeah. sort of compendium of world uh, of Western philosophy. Very interesting. Yeah, great journey and great kind of repetition of all the, all the big names and all the different schools. So that's hugely recommended for anybody listening. Um, and now, just in 20 minutes, we're going to talk about your favorite parts of The Lord of the Rings, the influence the book has had on your life, and maybe a couple of reasons as to why people should read it and what they might get out of it. So maybe just to start somewhere, like when did you discover the books and why is it a special book for you? So I first started getting into J.R.R. Tolkien back in third grade, actually. I read The Hobbit, which was the first book he sort of published to a mainstream audience, which is really a children's book. And then a couple of years later when I was in fifth grade. So for any non-American listeners, that's about 10 years old when you're in fifth grade. Um, and I just fell in love with this book. Uh, it's really three books, The Fellowship of the Ring, The Two Towers, and Return of the King. And I just could not stop reading it. It was just such a fascinating story to me, such a great world that he created. I just loved it so, so much. It was absolutely amazing. That's really, so uh, how has it changed since you first discovered it? Has it grown since you discovered it as an, like, 10-year-old? Yeah, it's absolutely, absolutely grown. It's Tolkien has taken up uh, much of my life, actually. You know, I've read so much more. Tolkien has published so many books and his son has published so many books after uh, J.R.R. Tolkien actually died. Um, so, you know, I've I read after The Lord of the Rings, I read The Silmarillion, which is, you know, Tolkien's big mythological work about, you know, the history of the world. And you can kind of go on to the books about the books. Um, so there's like this big 12 volume series uh, edited by Christopher Tolkien, J.R. Tolkien's son, just about the various drafts of the Lord of the Rings. And so you can just really get into the details and you can read the letters of J.R.R. Tolkien. You can just so, get so invested in this world that he is so masterfully created. It's just so much expanded and it's just taken up, like I said, so much of my life. Uh, you know, it's almost pains me to say it because, you know, so much of my, of my life is devoted to, to Tolkien, but it's just so fascinating. I love it so, so much. It's no, such a rich world. I think it's great. It's it's some of the like the biggest literary works are so full and rich, and with beauty and wisdom and everything. You can spend decades on them and just still keep learning and discovering. Especially those works that kind of changes the way you think or see the world. They might have this kind of recur recursive effect on you that you then you see the world differently and then you discover new things and that changes you and then you can see the work with new eyes again and then it keeps going. So um, I just also, I have a couple of uh, just notes about Tolkien for those who um, are not that familiar with his biography as well. So he was born in 1892 and he lived until 1973. And he wrote The Lord of the Rings between 1937 and 1949. I hope that's correct. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that sounds correct to me. <laughs> and the books uh, were published then in 1954 and 1955. And they were also uh, very well received at the time. Uh, some books like they, they need a couple of decades because they might be ahead of the time. But but this one, like in, in the British papers, they were described as among the greatest works of imaginative fiction in the 20th century already when when they were published. So so that's a little bit about him. Um, but I remember you said something about 
his interest in language and that he made some of the languages before he started writing the stories. And then mm-hmm. you can say a little bit about that. Yeah, absolutely. So Tolkien wasn't really an author by trade. He was a professor and he was a philologist. So he was somebody who studied the history of languages and he taught at Oxford and various other schools uh, in the in England. And so what he really wanted to do with his life is he wanted to create these languages. That was his big hobby is, you know, as some people would create music, some people would create, you know, paintings. Tolkien really viewed language as an art form. You know, you can achieve so much beauty just through words and through sentences and how they function, how they work with each other. He found so much beauty in that that he made his own languages. And so the first two that kind of evolved into, you know, the, the major languages of his works um, were Quenya and Sindarin. Uh, they weren't called that at first, but those are what their names became uh, in Lord of the Rings. And so with these two languages, you know, he really thought, well, it doesn't make much sense for these languages to exist without people to speak them. And so in World War I, he fought in World War I. Um, a lot of the time he spent when he was, you know, in the trenches or when they had downtime, he was writing stories. Uh, these great stories about elves and men fighting these big, terrible, um, you know, sort of godly, uh, evil creatures uh, that are in this world. And so he kind of used some of his experiences to just develop this rich history for these languages just to give them some historical accuracy, really. And Mm -hmm. so that kind of ballooned um, into this big mythological work I mentioned earlier, the Silmarillion is what he spent most of his life writing, but it wasn't published until after his death. Uh, In 1975, it was published. And so when he was uh, you know, when he had children, he would tell his children the story of Bilbo Baggins, the Hobbit. Um, and so this became this big, long uh, children's book, essentially, that was later published, I believe, 1938, uh, that had kind of accidentally opened up this big world that he, he had created purely based on language. That was the founding principle of everything he created. And of course, after The Hobbit came The Lord of the Rings and all of these other uh, various books about Tolkien. And it all started with just him wanting to create a language. And I think that's so, so incredible. Yeah, it's very fascinating. I don't think that many people know about like the origin of the stories being mm-hmm. the languages. Um, there are many things about, I mean, we work about a lot with Dante and kind of he created the Italian language and he also wrote a book about creating a language and it uh, kind of the, so much of the aesthetics that might go into it as well, kind of the the morphology, like the endings and the sounds. This is, for someone who has the talent, it seems like it's really, it's very much musical, but it's also, just something that's very clear for them, like how they, <laughs> how you can make an artwork out of it. Uh, it's also fun with the Cinder in the one of those elf languages, elves languages that uh, I'm working with a, a person from from Wales, and he and he is also teaching Welsh. He's very much into the Welsh language, and I've learned so much about um, how Welsh is fascinating. Both because I think it sounds a little bit similar to the the elves, mm-hmm. but also how like the Celtic uh, nation of the Welsh have uh, like they have absorbed all the different influences from the Anglo-Saxons and from the the Vikings, the Norse and from the Latin and also kept much of the Celtic in itself. So it's a, it's a really kind of unified form and they have some endings borrowed from Latin in some tenses, but not others. And uh, so um, I'm not, I'm not sure if this is any (laughs) in your, your interest as well, or if that's a, how much the, the, the Welsh is kind of, um, how official that was from, from Tolkien as an inspiration, you know? Well, it's interesting that you mentioned Welsh, actually, because his real love of languages started with the Welsh language. Uh, he lived in sort of the western part of the UK. Um, and so right behind his house were train tracks. And he would see these trains go by and they were carrying coal. And they were carrying coal from into Wales. 
And so on uh, the sides of these coal cars, you would see these really mysterious words that he just fell in love with. You know, he didn't speak the Welsh language mm -hmm. at the time. All he spoke was English. And so he decided like right then when he was this child, just looking at trains in his backyard, I want to study that language. I want to see what that is because he just thought it was so beautiful. And like you did kind of mention, uh, the language seen therein um, is sort of designed to, to incorporate similar sounds to Welsh and similar sort of ideas from Welsh. Another language that was important to him was Finnish. And that was mm. the other major language. Quenya uh, uh, takes a lot of inspiration from Finnish. Uh, so he takes sort of these uh, real world languages and he doesn't really modify them to make these languages, but he certainly takes inspiration and sounds and sort of the feeling of these languages to create these mythical fictional languages. And I think that's just yeah. so fascinating. It's very interesting also because Finnish is very different from Welsh. <laughs> I mean, the, the, the Finnish language is known to be like they have the stress on the first syllable. So they talk like this with every syllable, like that's a part of the kind of the melody that they're making. Um, yeah, so um, I thought also then now just to get uh, more into the, the substance of the stories in, in the, the Lord of the Rings. So you have like two or three favorite parts of the whole epic and, and maybe a bit why they are favorite parts for you. I really like this character Faramir. Uh, mm -hmm. So in the Lord of the Rings, you know, the big quest is to destroy the one ring, which is sort of the embodiment of Sauron's power, which is the, the big evil being in all of Middle Earth, which is this, this fictional realm. Uh, and so the, the main two hobbits, Frodo and Sam, are carrying this ring uh, and they're passing through this land, Athelion, and they come across this man, Faramir. Uh, and so what Faramir does, so this, the one ring is this big tempting force. You know, anybody who comes near it really wants to have it. They want to use it. They want to use its power. And that's sort of this interesting dichotomy because, you know, the goal is to destroy it. They keep getting, you know, hindered by people wanting to take it and use it for their own. Uh, but when it comes to Faramir, he doesn't want it at all. And he's just this very admirable person. He says he wouldn't take it if it was lying by the road. You know, he wouldn't even pick it up if it was lying there in his grasp. And what's so interesting about that is he had a brother that was in this group of people that were, you know, traveling to destroy the ring. And uh, really his brother Boromir's downfall was that he tried to take the ring from Frodo um, that's what ultimately kind of led to his death. And we see this interesting dichotomy with Faramir. You know, he does not want this power. And another sort of interesting about interesting thing about Faramir is that he really does not like war. You know, he's with all these other soldiers and they're fighting this grand big war against Sauron, but he hates it. He hates every second of it. He does not want to fight. Uh, and as he sees all of these, these people that he's fighting, he looks at them with honor and he's kind of thinking, you know, this is just a young person, you know, he was just as honorable as I was, who knows if he was just forced into this by evil masters, you know, it's kind of this interesting uh, sort of perspective on war, you know, he's not glorifying it, he's saying, you know, these are just people, they're sent here by evil people to try to attack us, and they're wholly convinced that we're evil, just as much as we're convinced that they're evil, and it's this sort of interesting perspective on war that I think Tolkien himself sort of felt when he was down in World War One in the trenches, uh, fighting, you know, what he was told was this big evil army, but he's kind of looking at all these people, you know, they're the same age as him, you know, they have the same background as him, you know, are they really evil at all? And that's kind of one of my favorite ideas in the Lord of the Rings is just this idea of war and how Faramir kind of embodies that sort of uh, perspective on war. Yeah, that is interesting. So one thing is just the historical, like, I think it's still hard for us to understand like in the late 1930s and then into the 40s when he's writing that he... <laughs> Like 20 years before, or 25 years, they had the first world war and now they go into the second. Like how they view the future at that time, like how dark it must have seen for them and it just never ended. So like, 
it's natural that he puts things also got all these glimmers of optimism maybe into into his stories uh it's also this with farmer that he's uh i think i read somewhere that he is maybe the well one of the more more misrepresented characters in the movies Mm -hmm. that in the books he's much more like this contrast is the saintly figure uh, versus boromir who is uh, a mixed figure (laughs) he's both the one who wants to take the ring he wants the full power to save the city and then you have this whole topic about like well but if you use evil for a good cause it's not going to work because Mm -hmm. the evil will destroy you so you you can't do it then (laughs) then if he does that then he will take the city and it will become an evil city just by Mm -hmm. nature so but then he regrets and repents at the end there so i mean that's part of this boromir transition at the end there so um yeah so that's a that's a really fascinating part of um you can also see yeah, so some of the, the thoughts also a bit of the theology as well from from tolkien in there um yeah uh, another episode or two from the story you know overall this isn't so much an episode but um kind of just tolkien's views on evil are very interesting that he could kind of puts forth in the lord of the rings there's so many different varieties of evil you know there's not just one big bad um you know there's multiple evil characters that they come across and so just sort of like you know the the evil of temptation you know versus the evil of power and the evil of greed all kind of like combine uh to create you know many trials for for these hobbits as they're traveling to mordor to destroy the ring um but overall you know tolkien had this very interesting idea um between you know chaotic evil and ordered evil Mm-hmm. And so what he kind of believed, you know, there's this sort of chaotic evil that just wants to destroy and it wants to, you know, consume and, uh, you know, devastate things. But he believed that that evil would never work. You know, in the end, it would always destroy itself. Yeah. Ordered evil, on the other hand, as kind of represented by Sauron in The Lord of the Rings, will work. You know, it's this sort of, you know, tempting evil, you know, it can convince people that it's good and it just wants to conquer. It doesn't necessarily want to destroy. It wants to conquer. And so that's this interesting dichotomy, you know, this ordered evil can really succeed if you let it, you know, it's so important to stand up to the evil when you see it, because otherwise this evil can organize and it can group and it can convince people that it is good and it eventually will succeed if you do not stop it. Mm. And so just this very interesting sort of idea of evil and sort of the the corrupting nature of evil is just so fascinating. I think that's one of the big reasons why I love uh, the Lord of the Rings so much is just this idea of, you know, how unstoppable evil can be if we let it. You know, yeah. we can stop it, but we make we need to make sure that we do stand up and stop it. It's a um, there's something similar in uh, in Inferno by like like Dante, in, not just because it's Dante, but because it's, it represents the the tradition, kind of a couple of centuries or more than that of of uh, thinking and theology uh, at the time. So, but right before you get to the ninth circle, the deepest of the Inferno, you get to this well, which is guarded by giants and they are uh, then also then the, the the gateway into the the worst of the evil are these giants and what they represent are three things it is uh, intelligence and strength and evil will so those three things together is what g- gets you straight down into the, to the heart of where lucifer is that's uh, a little bit maybe a little bit somewhat the same about like, the orderness of one of the 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 intelligent form of of evil. So, yeah, yeah. Any thoughts about that? I mean, that sounds that sounds very similar. You know, sort of that intelligence. You know, Sauron, this big bad, is not stupid. You know, he knows exactly what he's doing. He's one of the smartest beings to ever you know come into Middle Earth. 
Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in the past history, you know, going into the Silmarillion almost, you know, what he did was he convinced so many people that he was good and that he's giving them this big benefit and these rings of power and the one ring, you know, he's playing the long game here. He knows that eventually he will win if he keeps this organization and this structure. If he keeps convincing people that he is good, you know, he's going to win. He's such a smart villain that you don't really interestingly see too much in the Lord of the Rings itself. Um, you know, that's another interesting thing about Tolkien. Sauron's kind of faceless uh, in yeah, the Lord of the Rings. Nobody actually faces off against Sauron. He's just kind of this foreboding presence. And that's another reason why I love the Lord of the Rings is, you know, you go back in the history of things and you yeah. really get this personification. You get this deeper understanding of what everything means. It's so, so interesting to me. I love right. that so much. I was thinking about exactly that point because he, well, you have the priest or like when he, he fights and he cuts off the finger, like uh, mm-hmm. the finger gets cut off. But, but the thing that in the story is that Sauron is just a spirit, like it's just the, the, the evil spirit of him. He's not materialized, makes it so much worse, but also much more relatable that you mm-hmm. can start thinking about other things in the world today, even then you can kind of suddenly think like, well, does some of this apply to, to, to things still and then obviously it's timeless it will always apply that this, the spirit of of a sauron metaphorically will uh, will always be there but it can, and it can grow stronger and it can but you might say that there's a kind of manifestation in the orcs mm-hmm. maybe that they represented the the growing materialized version of sauron maybe mm-hmm. so which makes it uh, a different kind of, of uh, threat and kind of looming damage that's coming um, absolutely great uh we have time for one more one more uh, favorite thing with lord of the rings for you you know i really just love you know i've talked a lot about you know the evil and the sort of dark and you know despair sort of thing but i think a lot of what tolkien really succeeds at is the beauty he's mm. such um, a descriptive storyteller you can go just pages essentially and just describing how beautiful things are especially when we look at the beginning of the story um, in the Shire, which is the home of the hobbits. And it's this beautiful green rolling hills that it describes in just beautiful, beautiful detail. And it's kind of this simple life. Um, you kind of see that back at the end, uh, you know, spoiler warning for the, for the book published in the 1950s. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But in the end, they do destroy the ring. Sam and Frodo are on the slopes of Mount Doom, this big volcano, lava sort of coming down around them. What kind of keeps them alive, essentially, is they're, they're thinking of home. They're thinking of this green. They're thinking of this, this beautiful, beautiful land and just the simpleness that they want to return to um, and just the amount of detail that uh, Tolkien can go into in those sorts of beautiful scenes is just so overwhelming almost at times, just the amount of detail he can go into. And you see that again in Lothlorien, uh, this beautiful home of the elves with these big towering golden trees. And you see it in the mines of Moria, this big underground dwarven city uh, that's been deserted for many years now, but you still see this beauty um, with this massive great hall. And you can see this just time and time again um, you know, I highly recommend, of course, at this point, uh, anyone who has not read The Lord of the Rings, you absolutely have to just, if nothing else, yeah. to get these beautiful descriptions. It's so beautiful. Yeah, I was, I was about to mention that. Like the final wrap up would be then like why um, a couple of reasons. If people have never, never read the books, like one or two reasons why, why they should. But now you said one just for the beauty of it. Um, and, or, and another thing, if you have a second thing. Just as an inspiration inputs for people. So Lord of the Rings, actually, in an interesting sort of way, is kind of the reason why I even started podcasting. Um, if you kind of go back, you know, I fell in love with Tolkien's description of language and how he creates language. And that's 
ultimately why I chose my major in College of Linguistics. That's why I kind of want to study language now. It started with that interest in Tolkien. Um, and so then it kind of became this interest in mythology and philosophy and all these other topics. And, you know, that's another reason why I would recommend The Lord of the Rings and Tolkien in general is to just get sort of this deeper appreciation for language. I think that's really something that he mm-hmm. succeeds at so much. You know, if you want to learn anything about language, The Lord of the Rings is really sort of a place to start to get this sort of idea of the beauty of language. You get so many snippets of, you know, the, the Elvish languages and snippets of the Orc languages too, and the, uh, the Dwarf languages and that sort of thing. And it's just, you get this suit, so much beauty and just understanding what language can really do. I think that's the big reason uh, for, for anyone to, to read it, in my opinion, um, you know, talking about, you know, morals and everything, of course, you know, you should read it for, for the morals and the big picture stuff, but just this beauty of language, you know, that's really kickstarted my interest in the subject. And I think it can kickstart a lot of interest in the subject for other people too. Yeah, that's really well put. And a great uh, recommendation for people as well. <laughs> uh, and I think if, if Tolkien had heard you, I think he would be, uh, <laughs> it would be heartwarming for him <laughs> to hear this, I think, <laughs> many decades after that, <laughs> that this is the effect that it has on people. Um, also, when you talked about the beauty, it's like this one scene from the movie something came really strong for me was uh, towards the end when I go to the mountain and then suddenly there's uh, it's like horrible gray and, and heavy weather <laughs> like all the time. But then suddenly there's a little glimpse, like kind of crack in the skies and they see the stars. And that's just like one of those uh, uh, moments of just a contrast of it and the beauty and the, this reminder. And then kind of this, it becomes also this like overarching uh, feeling of of Tolkien's world, that it is something good and beautiful, <laughs> like that's Absolutely. embedding all of it. So, yeah. So that's um, that was that was really really great and concise <laughs> points there. Just both your favorites and your recommendations. Uh, I had one little quote I just wanted to. I was thinking like, is there one quote that I would take out from the, the works? And uh, it will be for me. It will be is maybe one of the most famous ones. But it's when Gandalf when they, he talks with Frodo and Frodo doesn't like kind of the world they live in and 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 the, the task they, they're given and uh, and he tries he wants to kind of reject it, but then. Um, Gandalf says, well, we can't choose when we live. And he says that all we have to decide is what to do with the time that is given us. And it's just, it's so timeless and beautiful and applicable. It's almost like every day you can just wake up and you can think about this. Like, yeah, this is all you, you can ask of yourself is that you're given a certain amount of time, make the best of it, try to do something positive. And, uh, and that's, that's all you have to decide. Absolutely. You know, you can't decide if you're going to face great evil, but you can decide if you're going to stand up to that evil. Exactly. That's, that's the big message in Lord of the Rings, I think. Yeah. Uh, all right. So that's the wrap for the 20 minutes. Um, any final thoughts the last few seconds here? or um, Read the Lord of the Rings. That's yeah, all I have read to say. Lord of the Rings. <laughs> Um, and also just at the end there, I would just send them uh, like for people, like a little plug for your podcast. It's, uh, both the philosophy, the first 42, 43 episodes, I guess, are, are philosophy. And now we're into mythology, different, uh, world mythologies. So, and, uh, so I would highly recommend that one. And, um, also we're going to have the next episode on this podcast. The Renaissance podcast is going to be about Ulysses and James Joyce with Sean Ekman, an Irish American. It's also like a <laughs> patriot for Ireland. Um, And um, with that, just want to say thanks, everybody, and uh, see you again soon. Bye-bye.